Well, on Tuesday night, a billion crystals, a billion individually sculpted crystals fell out of the sky. Did you guys see that? It was beautiful, wasn't it? A billion individually sculpted, sculpted crystals sitting um, um, on the branches of every tree. And as I walked up to work on Wednesday, it was, it was just beautiful. Blue sky, the snow crystals sitting on the branches. And I thought this is just the most heart-stoppingly beautiful world. It is amazing, isn't it? And yet this world is also incredibly brutal, incredibly brutal. Um, this, is, this man's name is Wang Yi, and he's 45 years old. He's the leader of a pastor. He's the leader of a church in China, there with his wife, Jiang Rong. Um, and on the 9th of December, he was arrested, and his 11-year-old son hasn't seen him since. On the 10th of December, his wife was arrested, and they've been disappeared. Reports suggest that he spent most of this last week strapped into a torture chair, because he refuses to sign confessions of trumped-up charges against him. This world is at the same time incredibly beautiful and incredibly brutal. Violent and painful. And one of the hardest questions we face as we think about the world is how can we square this combination of beauty and brutality? Some people tell us that the, that the brutality in the world, it's just a delusion. It's not really there. We should rise above it. But we all know that's untrue when we visit a hospital or when we stand by the grave of a friend. Some people claim that the beauty in the world is just an illusion. But we all know that that's untrue. As we walk across the hills or as we laugh with a friend as we enjoy time together. This world is truly beautiful and yet truly brutal. How do we resolve that? Well, I'm a Christian and we are Christians this morning, aren't we? So we believe that this world was the flawless good gift of a flawless good God. And yet we have turned away from him. We have chosen evil. We have chosen hatred rather than love. And so now this world is broken. Now, now as humanity, we have wrecked it. We have broken ourselves. We have broken our relationships. We have broken our world. But we don't despair. We don't despair because the Bible promises, and has promised from the very beginning, that it will not carry on this way. One day, a king will come who will crush all evil. He will end all wicked governments. He will cure this world from its rotting disease. He will get rid of all that is ugly and foul in this world. He will free us from the spiritual forces that have enslaved us. And he will free us from our own behavior from our addiction to self-destructive, other-hurting, planet-wrecking behavior. He will come, and he will lead us to freedom. He'll provide us with a real, forever home. He will rule us with real justice. That is what is coming. God's kingdom ruled by God's 
king. It's what God's people have always longed for. And this morning, we are in Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, and we're reading verses 20 to 37. It'd be great if you had it open in front of us. And we're going to see Jesus, first of all, speaking to a hostile group, and then to a supportive group. And as he does, he tells them that the kingdom has already come, but the king is going away. But when he returns, it will be unmissable, it will be inescapable, but it will be disaster for the distracted. Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 37. Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding corn together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord? they asked. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Well, we live on a little island in the Atlantic, don't we? So we don't get such impressive thunderstorms as most of the world does. Have you ever been in a proper thunderstorm out on the continent, maybe in central France. I remember one night that we were camping in central France and it was a totally idyllic evening. It was beautiful, it was balmy, it was warm. We snuggled down in our tents, fell asleep and then suddenly, bang, woke up in the middle of the night to the biggest thunderstorm I have ever known. There were lightning bolts that made the night day and noise like I'd never heard in my life. And I didn't turn to Liz and say, oh, Liz, I think the weather's changed. I turned to her and said, ah! I grabbed the mallet and I ran out of the tent. And uh, it was four pretty 
intense hours. But the whole time, my daughter was just asleep. (sighs) Blissfully unaware. But we're told in this chapter, when Jesus comes, it will be unmissable. No one will be able to miss it. Verse 24, for the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. Elsewhere, we're told in the Bible that the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Jesus told us, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. When Jesus returns, it will be unmissable. Everyone will see it. Everyone will be aware. So you should never worry that you've somehow missed the coming of the king. You should never believe con men who claim that he's come secretly and you've missed out. No one will miss it when he comes. And in fact, it won't be just unmissable. It will be inescapable. Look down at verse 37. The disciples wonder where the king's coming will have an impact. Verse 37. Where, Lord, they asked. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Just as vultures find an abandoned corpse anywhere in the Middle East, so the coming of the king will affect everywhere. But that is a grim image, isn't it? Of vultures circling over a dead body. How can that be a picture of the coming of our glorious king, the one who brings God's kingdom, the one who brings real freedom, the one that we are waiting for? Well, it's because that day will actually be a day of disaster for the distracted. It will be unmissable, it will be inescapable, but it will be disaster for the distracted. Did you notice that in verse 20, Jesus is speaking with people who don't like him? They're unimpressed by him. It's the Pharisees. They're very religious moral people who are hoping that one day a king is going to come who's going to fix the politics in Judea by getting rid of the Romans and putting them in charge. Marvellous. That's what they're looking forward to. But they're unimpressed by Jesus. You see, they, they look at Jesus and they see that sick people are being made well. They see that adulterers and con men are being freed from their addiction to, to money and to lust. But that's not the king they were looking for. They were looking for a king who'd kick out the Romans, and the Romans are still there. So clearly, the king hasn't come. And so they have the audacity to come to Jesus and say, when is God's kingdom going to arrive? They don't see that Jesus is the king because he's not the sort of king they're looking for. They're distracted by their analysis of what is wrong with people. They think the only problem in the world is out there. The only problem in the world is that we've got to fix politics. If we can change the system, then everything will be okay. But Jesus has come to bring healing at a far deeper level Because he sees that the brutality and the brokenness of this world goes to a far deeper level. The line between good and evil runs through every human heart. The evil in this world is not out there. The evil in this world is in here, 
It's in me. It's in you. And so what has Jesus come to do? Verse 25, he has come to suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus has come to suffer and to die because he has come to do more than just break the politics and remake it in a good way. He has come to change our hearts, to feel, to fix our broken relationship with God so that we can come to him as father and not as judge. But that's not what the Pharisees are looking for. And so they ignore him and they, restri- they, they reject him. They are distracted. And the coming of Jesus will be a day that is unmissable, a day that is inescapable, and a day that is disaster for many, despite the fact that they have received very clear warnings. 33 years ago, and one week, and one, um, 33 years and one week ago, um, 17% of all Americans were watching the TV because Space Shuttle Challenger was being launched. And as they watched, suddenly they saw it explode. It was a horrific moment. Does anyone remember that? 28th of January, 1986. It was live on TV. The space shuttle blew up in front of a horrified, shocked world. But the senior management at NASA had no excuse for being shocked as they watched it. They had been warned that if they launched the space shuttle, when temperatures were that low, the O-rings would fail, the boosters would explode, and the space shuttle would be lost. The night before, five engineers who had worked on the boosters had had a teleconference for a number of hours with the senior management and said it is not safe. We cannot guarantee that the boosters will not explode. We think they will if it's launched at that temperature. And they launched it anyway. It exploded. Seven people died. But there have been clear warnings. And yet, it was unexpected despite the clear warnings. And that's not the first time it's happened in human history that way. When clear warnings have been ignored and disaster has come, Noah spent many years building a boat, a huge boat, 135 meters by 24 meters by 14 meters because God warned him that a flood was coming. And Noah warned everyone he could, but no one listened. Why didn't they listen? Because they were too busy. But then the rain came. Then the waters rose. And despite all of Noah's warnings, they never expected this. But it was too late. The door to the ark was closed. It was too late. The same thing happened later on in the town of Sodom, a notoriously brutal town, a town of exploitation, a town of greed, a town of rape. Abraham's nephew, Lot, moved there. He was a little bit uncomfortable with the brutality all around him, but it became home for him and his family. Then one night, angels came to warn him that God had heard the cries of the victims of the town and justice was on its way to the town. He spent the night in the town pleading with other people to escape. But no one took him seriously. As morning came close, 
the angels grabbed his hands, the hands of his wife, the hands of his daughter, and pulled them out of the town and said, run. And then fire came down and the town was destroyed. And no one in Sodom was left alive because they were too wrapped up in life to hear the warnings. They were distracted. That's what Jesus says, verses 26 to 29. Look at what he says. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It destroyed them all. Because they were distracted. Because they would not engage with the warnings. They would not hear what was being said. And Jesus says that is an exact picture of what will happen on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Look at verse 30. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. It will be just like this. Back then, distracted people were destroyed. When Jesus returns, again, distracted people will be destroyed. It's a terrifying picture, but it's one we need to engage with seriously. You may be here today and know that you're not a Christian. Maybe you've heard this message many times, but life's just been too busy. There's too many other things going on. There's not space in your life to think about it right now. That is a dangerous place to be. The king is coming. We don't know when, but when he comes, you will see him. You won't be able to escape him, and it will be too late. The kingdom is here now. The door is open now. You can enter into the kingdom now. You can come to him now, depending on his death for you, and be forgiven. You can do that today. But I can't guarantee you'll be able to do it tomorrow. I can't guarantee you'll be able to do it this afternoon. What is it that for you makes life too busy? What is it that for you makes you say, I'm sorry, I don't have time to think about this now. Next month, next year, once the business is running smoothly, once the degree is finished, once the mortgage is paid off, I'll have time to think about it. Once the wedding is planned, once the children are grown up, I'll have time to think about it then. No. This is our opportunity. We don't know how long it will be. And many of those who perish will perish simply because they were too distracted to engage with what was being said to them. All I can do is, is tell you. Bob Abling, one of the engineers who had told his seniors about the flaw in the O-rings, drove into work that day with his daughter, apparently repeatedly hitting the, the dashboard saying, it's going to blow up, it's going to blow up, 
it blew up. He went into a deep depression. He left work in the next couple of weeks. Didn't know what else he could have done. But there was nothing else he could have done. He had told the people that could act. And they had done nothing. You are the only person that can act. To come to Jesus and be forgiven. If you know that you are still rejecting him. Hear this warning. And act on it. Don't ignore it. Nothing matters as much as this. What about if we're Christians? What about if we're here and we know that we're Christians? Is this warning something that is relevant to us? Is it something that we need to hear? Well, yes. Who is Jesus speaking to in these verses? In verses 20 and 21, he was speaking to the Pharisees who are hostile to him and against him. But from verse 22 down to verse 37, he is speaking to his disciples. And it is them that he is warning We need to hear this warning, Jesus says, that his return is unmissable, it's inescapable, and that for distracted people it will be a disaster. Because we too can be distracted, we too can be too busy for God. Look at verse 31. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Come with me for a minute to Catrum Station um, and picture with me a steam engine in Catrum Station, building up its steam. It's got carriages behind it. It's about to travel up to London. It's the end of the Second World War and there's a young wife sitting on there. She married her husband three weeks later. He went off to war and for three long years she has been waiting for him to come home. She's there with her luggage. She's there with her handbag. She's about to head up to London, when she hears a voice on the platform, and it's him. And uh, as the train begins to move, she opens the carriage and she jumps out into his arms. It doesn't matter that her handbag, her luggage are still on board the train. He's here. He's back. It's what she's been waiting for. It's what she's been longing for. And now, now it's time. Nothing distracts her. That is how we are to feel about the coming of Jesus. Paul describes God's people as those who earnestly long for the appearing of Jesus. 2 Timothy 4 verse 8. Those who have longed for the appearing of Jesus. That's not everyone who is in a church on a Sunday morning in Britain. Not everyone who hangs out with God's people. And Jesus reminds us of that by pointing us in verse 32 to one of the most tragic figures in the Bible. Look at verse 32. Jesus says very simply, remember, remember Lot's wife. Lot was dragged out of Sodom by the angels, along with his wife and along with his two daughters. They were told, flee, flee for your lives, don't look back. But Lot's wife couldn't manage that. Her heart was still in Sodom. She was fleeing a place that was under the judgment of God. She was running towards the promises of God. 
but her heart was still back there with her lovely home, her busy life, the plans she had. And so she looked longingly back and she was destroyed. And Jesus' brother James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem after Jesus had ascended into glory, he reflected on Jesus' teaching And in James 4, verse 4, he asks us this question. Don't you realize that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, that's not saying that we're not to have friends who don't know Jesus. We are to love our neighbors. We are to lay down our lives for them. We are to be good friends to people who don't know Jesus. We are to be in the world, we are told. But it is saying that we shouldn't be friends with the world. The system that stands in opposition to God. We can't be turned towards Jesus and at the same time be turned towards everything that's against him. We can't travel in two directions. Either we are going towards Christ and away from the world, however imperfectly, however flawed our obedience is, or we are going towards the world and we are walking away from Christ. And James actually says it's like being adulterous because Jesus demands all of our hearts, all of our affection be the first in our lives. And the world, too, demands exclusive loyalty because it hates Christ. And so we can't love both. And so James says, you adulterous people, don't you realize that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. It would be like the wife getting off the train in Catrum Station, walking sadly towards her husband whilst looking back at another man in the train carriage where her heart clearly is. That would not be a happy picture. That would be a tragic picture. Jesus puts it another way in um, Luke chapter 16 and verse 13. No one can serve two masters Either he will love the one and hate the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Jesus is love, and love is as strong as death. It's jealousy as unyielding as the grave. We're told in Song of Songs 8, verse 6. And to, to accept him as our master will cost us absolutely everything. That's what he says in verse 33 of our passage. Do you see that? Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life will preserve it. If we try and hang on to our lives now, we will lose everything. Because we cannot have the world and Jesus. But if we make Jesus the center now, then although it looks as though we lose our lives, actually, we will gain them. 
That's what Pastor Wang Yi knows. This is what he said in a statement that was released just after, um, just after he'd been taken into custody. He said this, separate me from my wife and children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. We testify to another eternal world and to another glorious king. Jesus is the Christ, son of the eternal living God. He died for sinners and rose to life for us. He is my king and the king of the whole earth, yesterday, today, and forever. He is undistracted. He knows what he is living for. He knows what the goal of his life is, even if it costs him everything now. Is that true of us? One of the questions that I always ask speakers as they apply to speak on Oak Hall trips is this. What is one of the biggest challenges facing the UK church today? And this week I got an interesting answer that I think is, is very profound and worth reflecting on. This is what the speaker wrote back to me. He said, I think the biggest challenge doesn't come from the outside, but from the fact that it is hard to get busy people to commit wholeheartedly to the cause of the gospel. Many people compartmentalize their lives and have a little bit of time for church rather than letting Jesus be the number one priority in their lives. It's very perceptive, isn't it? It really challenged me, made me uncomfortable. Do I have a little bit of time for church or is my life ruled by Jesus? Is my life shaped by Jesus? Is my life about Jesus? And yes, then I will be engaged in things of this world because I'll be using them to serve Jesus. We are to use the things of this world, we are told in 1 Corinthians 6. But we are not to be engrossed by the things of this world. Our treasures are not to be here. Our treasures are to be in heaven as we lay down our life and so gain it. And this problem... Jesus says, is supremely serious because Lot made it to safety, but Lot's wife only nearly made it to safety. And there's a big difference. And when Jesus returns, it will be a day of division. Look what it says in verse 35, 34, sorry. I tell you, that on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding corn together. One will be taken and the other left. When Jesus comes, there will be a dividing line that will run between colleagues and even through families as people are separated. Some going to eternal joy, some going to eternal loss. It is your responsibility to turn to Jesus, to put your trust in him, to make him not merely an accessory that improves your life, but the center of your life, the one for whom you live, the one for whom you die, the one who is 
the number one priority in your life. Not a small compartment called church things. And so in the light of this passage, I have to plead with you, come to Jesus, come to him before he comes. Because when he comes, it will be too late. Too late for those who have openly rejected him and too late for those who have treated him as a triviality. Come to him. Because on the day that he comes, it will be a day that is unmissable, a day that is inescapable, and a day that will be disaster for the distracted. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, fix our hearts on you, we pray. We confess that we so easily fall in love with this world and the things of this world. We so easily drift away from you. Help us, we pray, to be those that take up our cross, follow you, and lay down our lives for you. Amen.